Okay, can I just say I love the New York Times, but they didn't even put Trump on the front page as he interrupted the court proceedings after the judge told him yeah, not to. Me, actually, I mean, I I'm that. kind of amazed. I know they're sort of on a, you know, we will be above Trump kind of mode, but it was such an extraordinary but moment. I feel like, in fact, actually one of the dynamics is that coverage has pulled back so far. I find hmm. myself wanting to understand, like, what is his campaign? Who is he surrounded by right. in Mar-a-Lago? What is he doing? The By the way, I listened to the audio of the oral arguments. I know mm. this is like deep, you know, wonkiness, <laughs> but actually it was fascinating in a mm-hmm. car crash sort of way. The oral <laughs> arguments in the um, appeals court case of the immunity case. Oh, those were case, amazing, actually. I was, was going to say. extraordinary. I was like oh, totally. literally like. Peter, this is like, holy shit, come listen to this thing. 100%. When they started talking about can SEAL Team 6 uh, be ordered to assassinate your political rivals? And imagining that guy, I was fascinated by the Trump lawyer once again. So yeah. he's he's a Harvard Law School graduate. He's a Rhodes, Rhodes Scholar. Scholar. Yeah. Exactly. And here he is. Just basically, as far as I could tell, humiliating himself, making the argument that the president of the United States can yeah. sell pardons and can order the execution of his political rivals. Yeah, he could. I mean, there was this, so it was actually an extraordinarily great question. It was. <laughs> I was listening to it. I was waiting to go into a doctor's appointment. I'm sitting okay, in the so car I'm not listening the only to it. No, I'm afraid guilty as charged. So you let me take the hint for the dorkiness. Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I'm joined, as ever, by my colleagues Jane Mayer and Susan Glasser. Hi, Jane, and hi, Susan. Hey, Evan. Great to be with you. The Republican primary will officially begin on a chilly morning next week with the Iowa caucuses on Monday. But let's be honest, it is likely that this primary season is also already in its home stretch. President Trump has an unprecedented lead in the polls in Iowa, and all of the data we have at this point suggests that this may be as brief and uncompetitive a primary season as we've ever seen. Now, this, of course, could change. I am mindful that predictions in January are notoriously perilous, especially when it comes to some of the people in this race. But whatever the outcome of these early primary contests, this extraordinarily lopsided fight for the Republican nomination has demonstrated just how fundamentally our national politics has changed in the Trump era. So this week, we wanted to look at this primary that wasn't, in effect. What does it tell us about what's changed and not changed? And also, we're going to look at the Democratic side of the primary season, which has been in its own way unprecedented. Before we get into the candidates themselves, I, a word on Iowa. I'm curious, does this time of year make you guys uh, nostalgic for the experience of being on the ground in, in places like Iowa and New Hampshire? Well, I feel like that's one of the many things that, you know, the Trump era seems to be killing off uh, slowly, right, is that the romance of the hmm. the political early season, right, this uh, uh, small d democracy when you can go to Iowa, go to New Hampshire, you can meet the candidates. Now, I've always been a little bit of an Iowa skeptic, I must say. It's been a long time since 1976 that Jimmy Carter made the reputation of the Iowa caucus. Um, but, you know, the first time I covered a presidential campaign back in college. We drove up to New Hampshire in the 1988, very hotly contested, actually, primaries. And, you know, I think I was just hooked. Absolutely. We're standing in the famous Marathon Diner. And few people remember that Gary Hart, who had been so, you know, sort of tanked so 
spectacularly yeah. with his uh, scandal involving Don Rice and Princess Ticklefeather. <laughs> exactly. Well, he first was time actually, we've heard that on this podcast. He Go was <laughs> he was briefly rerunning, and I ran right. into him in the diner, politicking as politicians do in New Hampshire. And I was fascinated. His wife was campaigning with him. Hmm. And she was standing on the sign. And I, like, I got to march right up to her as a, you know, sophomore in college and say, like, you know, why are you still with him? Mm. <laughs> you know, very important. Is that what you asked? I, oh, totally. I was like, oh aren't gosh. you a feminist? And yeah. what did she say? Well, I don't really remember. I mean, obviously, Child, she explained while she— it's complicated. <laughs> exactly. You'll understand <laughs> when you're older. Yeah, someday you'll understand. But, you know, when, it was just—it was it was incredible. Jane, it was it, fun. I did. mean, I yeah, of course, did did my time in, in Iowa and New Hampshire. I had such fun uh, covering—actually, it was Mondale's race. And mm. I just remember nearly missing the campaign uh, plane. And it oh, was God. out on the tarmac, and the propellers were already going, and I was late. And so I just ran across the field. This is like a scene right from broadcast of, news, Jen. Right in front <laughs> yeah, of exactly. the plane. And I just remember the Stop. propellers started going slower <laughs> and slower. Then the gangplank came down. <laughs> And I went up there, and Mondale was standing right there, and I thought, oh, God, he's going to be so mad. He was laughing so hard. Oh, he was great. the nicest man. I have so. to say, I, yeah, that was 84, right? Would yeah, been, and that was. So between and, your propeller yeah. plane and your leaded gasoline on the way to New Hampshire, I suspect we've— But that is the perfect prelude to the fact that now here we are in this current primary season, and you've got these two people who came out of the gate at some velocity, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, who may be on their own propeller planes out of there pretty soon. There, there may not be much longer in their campaigns. Now, I will. if this is proven wrong, you'll be able to play this tape back in a couple weeks. But uh, Susan, what do you think happened? Uh, what, what have we learned from those campaigns? Yeah, this is the winnowing season, isn't it? In fact, actually, we already lost kind of an important figure in a way in the Republican race this week before any voting happened uh, with the exit of former New Jersey governor and very former Trump mm. friend, uh, Chris Christie. But I do think that the sort of untimely fall of Ron DeSantis in particular is worth going back yeah. and examining a little bit, right? You know, here's this guy. He's now sort of in the, the Jeb Bush memorial slot, uh, if you will, which is to say he was the one who was built up uh, as a possible Trump slayer. He had $100 million or more to spend in the race. Uh, he comes off this 19-point re-election victory in Florida. The coverage is absolutely Rhapsodic. rapturous about <laughs> this guy. And then he comes out and we realize the coverage of him completely ignores the reality of Ron DeSantis. And I mean, in a way, right, like it is proof that like Negative charisma mm, and, uh, you know, is is still not a good recipe for winning a presidential election. There's also the interesting kind of strategic fail of the DeSantis campaign, uh, you know, which is the decision to run even farther to the right of Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, I th it seems to me strategically it was a big mistake to try to out-Trump Trump, but really the takeaway looking at him, I think, is your first point that, you know, character still kind of matters. And I don't mean character as in virtue, but I mean coming across on TV in a way that is charismatic. Mm. Though I have to say, I don't know if you guys saw this, but just like in the last 24 hours in the final debate that he had with with um, Nikki Haley, 
um, there, there's been a sort of a little bump up of, you know, pundits mm-hmm. and conventional wisdomites saying, oh, he beat Haley. He might be able to just pull us off in Iowa yet or, you know, come in strong. And I was surprised it's like Frank Luntz um, saying but, he did really well. well. I, I will say to the point like, of the, but so, on the, you know, to the negative charisma point, there is an additional story that came out of that debate, which is just the supreme weirdness of him shaking his wife's hand at the end of the debate. <laughs> now, you know, look, it can be trivial, except that the truth is people try to read from presidential candidates at a level of humanity and in either dark ways or in positive ways that comes across. And in his case, he has failed to project that. Am I wrong? It was a little formal for someone you've been married to for <laughs> how many years? Had know, several children with Shaking yeah. hands with Bill? I mean, it's well, look, Jane's point is an important one, too, though. Like, just, you know, listener service here. One of the problems of trying to figure out what's actually going to happen in Iowa and New Hampshire is that, you know, journalists and the entire kind of political industrial complex has a vested interest in there being a race, totally. even yep. when there isn't That's one. Sure. And so, so okay, true. you know, is is DeSantis actually coming back? Well, remember, you're going to hear more about DeSantis uh, in the next few days because this is his one and only chance. He invested everything in the campaign in Iowa. He's made a big point of going to all 99 of Iowa's counties. And, uh, you know, this is the formula of Iowa's senior senator, very senior senator at this point, Chuck, Chuck Grassley. Grassley. The full and, Grassley. Is you know, he's done the full Grassley. <laughs> and, you know, basically, this is where his only chance is. And so he needs to come in second place to Donald Trump. And so one of the things is, you know, Haley has had this, well, it's a surge. But again, if you listen to the media coverage, sometimes you might think it's a much bigger surge than it actually is in the polls. But I noticed that she has overtaken now DeSantis for second place in uh, some of the Iowa surveys. And so that's the big thing. If you're talking about sort of handicapping or, you know, what does any of this mean? That's why these two are going brickbats at each other in uh, these increasingly irrelevant debates. But to the point about the pundits in the debate, what they didn't point out is that Donald Trump had counter-programming on Fox News that very night, the softball town hall, which received nearly double the audience of the quote-unquote debate. I mean, that's the point about the Potemkin primary. Thank you, Murdoch family. They're right back doing exactly what they did before. They, you know, privately, they say that Trump is a nightmare. Publicly, they hand him the microphone and just don't even intervene. Exactly. And by the way, that's the the Republican Party writ large that's where the ratings are and that's where the money is. And, And to that point, the idea that there is, in a sense, uh, a financial incentive in generating the illusion of a contest or in this case of keeping Trump right in front and center. What do you make of the idea, Jane, that Nikki Haley could come storming back in New Hampshire? That's one of the scenarios that people put out there. Is that a I mean, fake I mean, media only, narrative? Or well, really? I mean, you know, only a fool claims to be able to know for sure. She's not as strong as the people who want to see her surge ahead would hope she would be. Um, I mean, she keeps, I mean, I think the term that, that uh, actually DeSantis used was ballistic podiatry to describe what she's doing, which meant shooting herself in the foot. <laughs> oh, That's man. a lot. Um, complicated. That's a lot. That's... really complicated. But she, she has, I mean, she talks quickly. And with a lot of uh, self-confidence. But what is she really saying? Um, 
she's all over the place on Trump specifically. She has promised that she would pardon him if he's convicted. She hasn't ruled out running with him on the ticket. So if she was supposed to scoop up the anti-Trump votes that were going to go, you know, to, to Christie, that, that's a real problem for those voters because she basically eventually would have to be facing off with Trump. And she's not really facing off with him at all. She's well, not making the case. Exactly. Let's talk about Chris Christie yeah, exactly. and that Before um, he disappears fantastic entirely. hot mic moment, which also I was dorky enough when I was listening to that, where he is about to have a town hall in New Hampshire and announce he's dropping out. But then backstage, you hear this voice come on and he's speaking to someone. And what does he say? He says, and she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. And he also said that DeSantis called him in a panic. Yeah. Although that was a more cryptic, you know, what was the, you know, what what exactly was the nature? And then it goes dead. The line goes dead. Um, (laughs) You know, look, it's very interesting. The fact that Christie dropped out, you know, he was under enormous pressure to do so. He's up to double digits in the polls in New Hampshire. If you combine his support with that of Nikki Haley's, both of their supporters, presumably non-Trump voters, since otherwise they'd just be supporting the front runner, she actually appears to have a shot of uh, even defeating Too Trump. close to call, they're saying, if it was head on to, you know, just just she against Trump in New Hampshire. She might. Let's, let's go with this. Uh, she takes off scenario. And it would involve her probably uh, taking out DeSantis in Iowa with a stronger than expected second place finish mm-hmm. uh, that DeSantis drops out. Then she uh, either beats Trump or comes in a very strong, you know, gives him a huge run for his money. Boom, momentum, and we're off, except dot, dot, dot. Yeah. You have several weeks without a primary. And what's next? Her home state of South Carolina, where Trump has an overwhelming, even potentially insurmountable lead. That is true. That's a very good point. But I do think it's possible that the the numbers would shift in her home state towards her if she came in really strong in New Hampshire or won. I mean, it would it would shake things up. And, and she's got, you know, I have to say, as someone who follows the money, I'm not sure how much difference it's really going to make here, but she's got unlimited amounts of money from the Coke brother who's loved Charles Koch, um, who with his brother David, when David was alive, have absolutely influenced American politics hugely with their fossil fuel fortune. And the, the Coke machine, which is Americans for Prosperity, is, is throwing all of its weight completely behind Haley in New Hampshire. And you think that could have an impact? We'll see. Well, money is important in American politics, but, um, you know, Trump's Trump's Trump. Well, and also, look, Ron DeSantis spent $100 million, a lot more money than Nikki Haley has spent in this race so far, or the people who are supporting her. I mean, yes. And in fact, Trump's already been sort of teeing up an argument against her that she's the establishment candidate because she's got all the big money. Because she worked in an administration, never mind that it was his administration. (laughs) All right. So, I mean, this now let's talk about Trump for a second. He is ahead by an average of almost 50 points in national polls. Now, look, we could talk about this week in and we out, but but I think this is a, a particularly important moment to try to actually understand, Susan, what gives? Look, we'll see what happens when the voters actually get a say. But it's fair to say already that the the political story of 2023 was Donald Trump's consolidation of the Republican Party behind him as he uh, at the same time experienced 
indictment after indictment, he also saw his numbers go up and up and up. So he ended the year actually with a far bigger lead, both nationally and and in key states than he had had at the beginning of the year. And that is the political story of Republicans. You know, hope springs eternal in January. It's actually a big problem as an editor or, you know, as a (laughs) stock picker, right? Is that like people always have these very optimistic scenarios. But, you know, I was writing my column about this this week and I, you know, I just, there's not enough January juice for me yet to believe that Nikki Haley is going to do in the next couple of weeks what two impeachments, what the pandemic and bleach drinking and, uh, you know, the insurrection and the attacks on the election and January 6th did not do, which is to break the Republican Party of the fever grip that Donald Trump holds over it. And so I do think those are the stakes. And and that's the other thing I do want to say, because it is, you're right, Evan, it's a moment. It's a moment to pull back and say, holy cow, you know, we have just a few days left, literally just a few days left for Republicans to stop Donald Trump. And we've become so inured to the idea that they can possibly do it. It means that we let it go once again without sort of marking the moment. It's never too late to do the right thing. Before we leave Iowa, I mean, I I feel like we have to talk for a second about the role that evangelical voters play. totally agree. It's just uh, shocking, really. I mean, what's happened to the evangelical Christians in this country? And particularly in Iowa, you can see it. I mean, there's been some very good reporting in The New Yorker and um, elsewhere about the change that's happened over these last few years, which is partly during the pandemic, people stopped going to church Mm. a lot and instead started turning to the internet for their spiritual guidance. And there are a number of of sort of self-styled preachers who have popped up, self-styled evangelicals, who basically have elevated Trump to a deity. Mm. Um, And and there literally are ministers now who are preaching in Iowa that you cannot be a Christian if you are a Democrat. But I have to say, it's really important whenever you talk about Donald Trump and the evangelicals, it's not just that he's not a religious man. He is so cynical in using them and their desire to be used by him. My favorite story in our book is actually when we run into Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina on the street in Washington one night at the very beginning of the Ukraine scandal that leads to Trump's first impeachment. And Graham, you know, is coming out of the palm. So we're standing Mm -hmm. on 19th Street. And he is bragging to us that Trump just called him in the middle of dinner to get advice about impeachment. And he tells us in this conversation, standing on the street corner in Washington, D.C., says, you know, he, Trump told me that, you know, his evangelical ministers called him to pray with him uh, tonight. And he was laughing at them. And he was, you know, like these people, they love to, you know, the God squad, they love to do this. And I just thought, you know, that is so classic, mm-hmm. right? You know, he he made fun of Mike Pence, his vice president, for four years uh, about Pence's sanctimony and his kind of wearing his religion on his sleeve. And yet these people, they don't care that Donald Trump is making a joke out of them. I mean, it's gone from that they backed him transactionally because he gave them the Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade to some kind of new 
religion of yeah. Trumpism. And part of it, if you stand back, I think one of the things that's interesting is if you look at polls, America is now less church-going by far than it has ever been before. I mean, back in the 1960s, something like 68% of Americans called themselves uh, church-going Protestants. Mm. Now it's half of that at best. And so kind of what's happened also, I think, is that the moderate Protestant church has collapsed. People don't go to church anymore who are not evangelicals, and they've left the field open to extremists, and the extremists have now captured a lot of Christianity. Although even among evangelicals, what's fascinating is that there is also the element of wanting to hold on to power in a backlash. There's a terrific piece by our colleague Ben Wallace-Wells in The New Yorker in which he interviewed many of these Iowa preachers, and that piece points out— Uh, Some very interesting numbers. It shows that the number of white evangelicals in Iowa has gone down significantly since the last competitive caucuses as well. So there's also an element of wanting to hold on to what you have. Now, they remain an even bigger force in the Republican Party, but still it's this anxiety that we are losing our power, that this sort of new, different, uh, unsettling, diverse America is, is coming for us, that Donald Trump is a genius at exploiting. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at the primary that wasn't for the Democrats and what that tells us about the year ahead. Going into the new year, the Gallup poll had President Biden's approval rating, as many people will know, in the high 30s, not where he wanted to be. That's lower than any president at this point in the campaign since Gerald Ford. Jane, a year ago, uh, Biden's approval rating was much better. It was averaging in the 50s. What types of voters have begun to soften in their support for him? Well, I mean, this is a really serious red flag. And specifically, when you take a closer look at it, his numbers are dipping among African-American voters, which are really the heart of the Democratic coalition. They're also falling among young voters who are also key to the coalition and among Hispanic voters. I think that at this point, they favor Trump, actually. And in some polls show that young voters favor Trump. I mean, it is it is truly an alarming picture that you get from looking at these polls at this point. Well, and in the big picture sense, right, what it means is it's actually surprising that Joe Biden has not faced a more explicit uh, uh, rebellion inside Mm. his party. Previous presidents who have had such questions about their leadership or about their political ability to carry the party forward, and I think it's more the latter in Biden's case than the former, but previous presidents, they they find themselves primaried. And you look at Jimmy Carter, and one of the big reasons uh, that he lost in 1980 to Ronald Reagan was that the party was ripped apart by Ted Kennedy's ultimately unsuccessful primary challenge of him. But that that is one of the big lessons for American incumbents is, uh, you know, internal dissension then translates, if not papered over, into weakness in the general election. And interestingly, Biden, although he has these really almost historic uh, low approval ratings, he has managed uh, to have only the most token of opposition inside the Democratic Party. However, what I'm fascinated by, given that, is to Jane's point, it hasn't actually made Democrats enthusiastic about supporting Biden. And, and remember, 
The reason his polls are bad fundamentally is because Democrats and independents who might be open to voting for Democrats are souring on Joe Biden. So I mean, we'll, we'll talk about him ahead. in a second. I want to talk I, about there was a there has been there has mm-hmm. been a primary challenge. I think we should have acknowledged there was you know Dean Phillips, Dean Phillips congressman who <laughs> you know on paper at least at the outset there were people who said this could be meaningful. Here he is, one of the what people wealthiest members of the house. <laughs> Show me the people. Well, I mean, certainly the Phillips family. Um, <laughs> I, I, but I think that's to your point, Susan. I mean, why is it that at a moment when historically all the rules of political physics would say this guy is open to a challenge? What do you think, Jane? I, I think why it's really it? interesting, too. I think that it represents the, a collective feeling that Trump presents such a threat mm. that um, responsible Democrats, a lot of them have just thought, we better just get behind Biden because we can't afford to lose this thing. But it's been a real dilemma internally. And behind the scenes in Washington, if you, any gathering of three or more Democrats, and you will hear this conversation, mm-hmm. basically. And they're not talking so much about Dean Phillips. They're talking about, can Biden do this? Can he, you know, is he strong enough? Is he going to get through it? He's seen as an incredibly weak yeah, incumbent I don't think I've heard a point. single conversation um, about Dean but Phillips. But, you know, I mean, I do think, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because it is interesting that he has been so completely turned into a, a cartoon character or whatever, laughed off the stage. Because he's actually, if you look at him, a somewhat credible candidate, I think. I mean, he's a two-term congressman. He's a moderate from the Midwest. He's a businessman who's made a fortune. He's well-educated. Why is it that nobody pays any attention to him? I think in a way, it may be the fact that he's a moderate Democrat. is it, It's very hard. He's too close to Biden, in effect. Yeah, you mean politically. and it's hard to get attention when you're not provocative. Yeah. He's not, I mean, a, he's not a, Susan, you're he's shaking not a your head. Thrower. What do you think? No, I mean, look, let's be real. Like, he's not getting attention because he's not a credible candidate. He's no, not. I, he's not a credible candidate. Why is he not? Because I mean, Donald be, Trump is the leader of the Republican Party. Joe Biden uh, has decades of support from key pillars of uh, the Democratic coalition and, in fact, has done what they would consider to be largely quite a decent job as president itself. Uh, it's not I mean, he's it's not running. serious. Okay, if there but, were a real primary campaign, uh-huh. then we would have very serious candidates in it. There is sort of a shadow primary campaign, but we would have the governor of California. I was thinking about this, too. And I think if you go back and you take a look at who were the primary challengers to incumbents who really were taken seriously and given attention, and basically they are leaders of movements. They're not mm. individuals who just say, I think I should get in. So you've, you know, so you Right. Got, Ted Kennedy was a pretty credible challenger even to even before that, Jimmy you've got Gene McCarthy, who's, you know, the anti-war movement candidate. Yeah. Uh, on the Republican side. And Bobby side, Kennedy. And Bobby Kennedy. And then you've got, on the Republican side, you've got uh, Pat Buchanan, who runs in 92 and 96. These are people who represent movements within American politics and within their parties. And I think the thing is that Dean Phillips Phillips' main selling point is, I'm like Biden, but I am not old. I think you're both describing something that we know that's out there, this feeling that there is this, call it a silent minority or majority within the Democratic uh, electorate of people who are deeply worried about Biden, and they are looking at others. And they say somebody like Gavin Newsom from California has been out there sort of running a, as you put it, Susan, I think a, a, a shadow campaign. You've seen him on Fox, for instance, defending Democrats on some level, but also not so subtly advertising himself. What what role is he playing 
here is he basically lining himself up for the possibility that if Biden doesn't go to the finish line that he's there? Well, look, that's the the very, very awkward dance. The party is putting all its stakes and, and all America's stakes, really, on a, a, a presidential candidate who's 81, who would be 86 at the end of the next term. Anything could happen between now and November that would open up uh, the race in in a way that we don't, you know, really know. It's already, of course, too late for a conventional kind of Democratic primary race, right? You know, all the filing deadlines in key states have passed. At this point, uh, you know, it would be a real mess if Biden were to find himself unable to to run or decide not to run again for another term. Uh, you know, would there be an abbreviated primary process? Would the Democratic convention ultimately have to pick a winner? Obviously, there's the issue that there's the vice president herself, Kamala Harris, who would be a formidable candidate, but not, I think, the slam dunk guaranteed successor to Biden in a, in an open succession race. And so you have Gavin Newsom, part of the shadow campaign, also traveling internationally to China. Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, is also mentioned. And I think, you know, Jane's point about the conversations anytime there's more than two people in a room in Washington, that's the, the real kind of shadow primary that's happening. You know, we can have a conversation like this. It all feels like things are sort of heading in a preordained direction. Of course, history tells us it's not true. You know, we've gestured a couple of times in this conversation to 1979 when Ted Kennedy uh, was uh, really on the path to being the presumptive great challenge to Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was a very weak candidate. And then Ted Kennedy gave an interview with Roger Mudd in which he was asked the plainest question in a campaign, which is, why do you want to be president? Well, I'm, uh, were I to, to make the, uh, the announcement and uh, to run, the reasons that I would run is because I have a great belief in this country that it is as more natural resources than any... And his inability to answer that question, not to be too grand about it, changed the course of history. That was more or less the beginning of the end of his campaign. Jimmy Carter went on, of course, to run and lose to Ronald Reagan in 1980. And that specter is in the background of the calculations Democrats made about their primary election this time, uh, not uh, undermining Joe Biden in their mind. But we have to allow for the possibility of surprise elements along the way here. As you think about it, Jane, are there, and this is you know wide open, but are there wild cards that are um, out there that you think could shape the course of the months to come in, in a way that would make some of these confident oh, I mean, early of predictions course. wrong? I mean, of course there are. I mean, and that's what we've seen in throughout sort of modern American political history. I mean, and some of them are terrifying. I mean, we've seen violence take candidates out. In this particular race, obviously health and the age of the candidates is going to play a big part. It's an unknown ending to yeah. this story. And, of course, we've got what's going on with Trump's legal problems. I mean, it, they're, they're incredible numbers of unknowns here. So I hope people are paying close attention. What do you think, Susan? What, what do you consider to be... Or, or are, are we overstating the possibility of that? Do you actually see that whether it's the power of 
Biden's incumbency or the power of Trump's dominance over his electorate that are making this less of a contest than the media might want it to be. <laughs> well, that's right. I do think there should be the permanent, you know, sort of uh, audience warning, which is that uh, there's a vested interest uh, in from anyone you're hearing from in cheering it on to be a real race. The likeliest outcome, of course, is that we are headed down the path of exactly the Biden-Trump rematch that the vast majority of America Democrats and Republicans say they don't want. But just because an outcome is likely does not mean it's foreordained, mm. and it does not mean it's guaranteed. Well, thank you both. It is a, a pleasure to be with you to try to make sense of this. We'll see where our predictions stand in a week. Thank you, Susan, and thank you, Jane. Thanks, Evan. Great to be with you guys. Ah, great to be with you guys. If we have to get out of the from under the covers, <laughs> might as well be together. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Susie Lechtenberg. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll be back next week. Thank you very much for listening.